Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be back home with you. Praise the Lord for your prayers for us while we served our God in the nation of Ghana. And you, I trust, will hear more about the work in which God is doing in the coming weeks. But let me simply tell you this morning that it has been once again confirmed to me that our God is not simply an American God, but He is the God of the nations. And He is growing His church, spreading His kingdom, announcing the fame of Jesus Christ, the Savior, to the people of Ghana. And so it was a great delight to be able to minister there. Thank you so much for sending us. Thank you for your prayers there. I had the distinct privilege on Thursday night to preach to a small prayer gathering about 30 Ghanaian believers there in a dirt field uh, with, with not a light out in the field. They're preaching in the dark. And let me tell you, they worship differently than you do. Um, a little more lively. Um, and so, uh, in fact, some even stood up while I was preaching. I, I don't know. It was pretty exciting. So I just praised the Lord. So feel free to be lively today, church. Uh, there you go. All right. So we're going to find our delight this morning in Christ our King and His resurrection. He is building His church just as He promised around this world. He's building it in Ghana. He's building it in Hamilton. And I'll tell you, he's building it throughout America because you and I and thousands of other churches are willing to send church planners throughout this country that they might proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We have the distinct honor this morning to have a good friend of mine, Jacob Baum. Jacob, will you come here this morning? Jacob here, uh, is here with us this morning as he prepares to plant a church sent out by Sterling Park Baptist Church in Percival. Jacob's a graduate of Patrick Henry College, may know some of you, and I'm delighted for Jacob to share with us what his work is going to be about and how our giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering helps people like Jacob. Will you please welcome Jacob here this morning, church? Well, it is a a great honor to be here at Hamilton Baptist. Um, I'm a pastor at Sterling Park Baptist near Dulles Airport, and we pray for you all regularly. We feel great kinship in the gospel with this church. Um, And some of you might know this, some of you might not, but actually in the 1960s, your church, this congregation, planted Sterling Park Baptist Church in uh, 1963. So you gave up your pastor at the time. He came to Sterling Park where he felt a great burden for that community. And so your history here is one of sacrificially giving of yourself to see churches planted. Uh, Because that's what we believe, that's what we see in God's word. That the way God works in the world to bring about glory to his name is through the local church. The local church in a unique way shows the gospel to the watching world. As the Apostle Paul first, in the first days of the gospel, uh, went throughout town by town preaching the gospel, what did he do? He left faithful gospel-preaching churches behind so that they would continue to proclaim the gospel. And so the reason we plant churches today is no different than the reason the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago. That's why you sent the Reverend James Cates to Sterling, Virginia in 1963, And that's why Sterling Park Baptist Church is now returning the favor in a way and sending me and my family to Percival, just up the road, to plant Loudoun Valley Baptist Church this September. So we're excited. We're excited to be back here. I lived here when I attended school here. 
Uh, our vision is that this church, along with um, our, our church, along with you all, uh, would be churches united in the gospel, committed to discipling believers, and passionate about reaching the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. So, we had an interest meeting yesterday. It was greatly encouraged. It looks like about 20 to 30 members of Sterling Park will be coming with us to start this new work in Purcellville. Uh, I know that you all here have a heart for missions, uh, whether that's overseas in Ghana or here in Hamilton in Northern Virginia. And a big way you do that is by, as, as Stephen has mentioned, by supporting giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American Mission. So the North American Mission Board directs, directly supports the planting of this church in Percival this year. Uh, it enables us to get off the ground as a new church, but it also uh, alleviates some of that financial burden from Sterling Park, our sending church, so that they can go ahead and send other church planters out. Um, so we hope that uh, another church is planted in Gainesville, Virginia, this year as well. Um, uh, NAM also provides me with, with training and support on a regular basis. I'm able to meet with the, the directors of the SendDC initiative, um, being provided with personal accountability, wise counsel, uh, a growing heart for the community. Um, NAM also provides me with networking so I can get to know people like Stephen and, and faithful pastors who are able to help me along and disciple me as well as we multiply churches for the glory of Christ. And so as you all kind of begin this month of giving to this offering, um, let me encourage you, I'm, I, or discourage you, I, I hope encourage you, <laughs> that I'm, I'm tangible, physical evidence that this offering bears great fruit. So thank you for giving to, to Annie Armstrong. Uh, I'm looking forward to, I think Loudoun Valley Baptist Church is looking forward to coming alongside Hamilton Baptist as we look to plant more churches in the years to come. We'll be praying for you all. We commit to doing that. And we ask that you would pray for us as well. What a testimony it is to the gospel uh, when churches don't compete with one another, uh, but love one another and even partner together to see more folks come to know Jesus. Uh, in John 13, verse 35, Jesus tells his followers, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So let's pray that our partnership together through this offering and through our love for one another would showcase the gospel to those who are watching. So thank you for having me and my family here this morning. Hopefully we'll get to know uh, or get to, to meet many of you before we leave this afternoon. Uh, God bless you. Hope to see you soon. Amen. Hey, Jacob, so why don't you stay here for a minute, brother? Well, you, you can encourage him. Brother, we're excited for this work. <laughs> Jacob alluded to one, one of, the, re, one of the, the hearts, I think, of a healthy church is that we understand that, that we're not... Our goal at Hamilton Baptist Church is not to grow Hamilton Baptist Church. And, and Loudoun Valley Baptist Church's goal will not be to simply grow that church. It is to grow the kingdom of God, whether it's here or there or elsewhere. It is to spread the fame of Christ that he might redeem the people, the nations for his glory. And so I'm so thankful that he can come and, and say, listen, when you give to this offering, you support this work. And so we want to be able to give and give sacrificially. My family plans to give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. I hope that you do as well. But we not only can support them through, uh, through giving, let's support them through our prayers even now. Pray with me, church. Father, I thank you so much for Jacob and his bride and his two little children. I thank you for his heart's desire to pasture your people and to spread the fame of King Jesus. May your hand rest upon this new gospel work next door. May you see it prosper. 
for the fame of Christ. May the lost come to know salvation through the name of Jesus. May he be worshipped and held on high in this community. Help this man. Equip him with wisdom and understanding, love and boldness, and a correct handling of your word, that he might do your work for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jacob. Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9. We'll begin this morning in verse 51. You'll find that on page 868 in the Pew Bible in front of you. As we consider Jesus' call of discipleship. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Hear now the Word of God. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for Him. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set towards Jerusalem. And when His disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do You want us to call, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay, nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we could come and place ourselves under. We're thankful that you have been kind to us today by gathering us together as your remnant, as your people redeemed by Christ, that we might hear from Christ, that we might submit to Christ through his word. And so help us even now, open our hearts in a new and fresh and powerful way by your spirit, that we might hear the words of our Lord Jesus, understand them truly, and apply them to our lives faithfully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. About a hundred years ago, a young man named William W. Borden was the heir to a fortune. In fact, after college, he not only would inherit this wealth, his father had a job waiting for him in the family business. But William had something else that he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to take the gospel to a place where people had not heard the name of Jesus, to the Uyghurs in West China. His father thought that to be a terrible idea. After all, he told his son, you can serve Jesus just fine here in America. And so Jacob faced this family pressure. In fact, not only the pressure of his father, but the the pressure of his fortune. In fact, the pressure of the, the fears that would take him to a far and distant land all pulling him away from the work in which he felt God had called him to do. And yet William 
held firm. After being educated at Yale and then at Princeton Seminary, he gave away the $11 million he had inherited so that he could take the good news of Jesus Christ to a Muslim people. He first traveled to Egypt. There he would begin his missionary training before he would head to West China. And while preparing for the mission field in Egypt, he contracted cerebral meningitis and he died at age 25. What do you think of William's decision to turn his back upon fortune and ease, comfort and security, family, to give up even his life? Of course, that's one way of looking at his decision is just looking at what he gave up in this life. But what about in light of eternity? In fact, do you know what William thought about his decision? His, his mother found his Bible after he had died. She began to flip through it, notice that he had written in his Bible. In one place, she found the words, no reserve. And she found that interesting and began to look elsewhere in his Bible and found a place that was dated shortly after his father had told him, if you pursue the mission field, you will never have a place in our family business. Next to that date, William wrote the words, no retreat. She found one last note. This one dated right after he contracted cerebral meningitis. He wrote, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. It seems to me that William's life was very Christ-like, except for the, perhaps the cantankerous father, Jesus, too, left, if you will, a vast fortune and the comfort of home to head to the mission field, a dangerous place, a place where his life would be involved with suffering and an early death. In fact, the only difference, well, one of the main differences between William's life and Jesus is that William thought that danger to be a possibility. Jesus knew that death was awaiting him. Look at verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. The Bible tells us when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was headed to the city of David, God's city. The apostles must have thought, well, Jerusalem, that's where the kings reign. That's where the Messiah is anointed. That's where we will receive the royal welcome. And as visions of greatness danced in their heads, they were undoubtedly excited about this trip from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. If you remember, I know it's been some months since we've been in Luke's gospel, but if you look in verse 46, you would have seen that James and John began to argue with the other apostles as to who was the greatest, giving us an insight into what they expected in following Jesus. They expected glory. They expected fame. They expected power. And off to Jerusalem, as they went, they thought they would find it there. I imagine Jesus had a different vision of Jerusalem. In fact, look back in verse 30 of Luke chapter 9. Remember this passage, the transfiguration, which we considered some months ago. There, Jesus being glorified upon the mount, we read in verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Literally, remember his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. 
And so Jesus was just reminded by Moses and Elijah themselves that he would depart once he reached Jerusalem. There he would die. There he would be killed. Jerusalem for Jesus was certain death. And Jesus knew it. He knew in Jerusalem that he would be betrayed with a kiss. He knew that there he would be arrested by the temple soldiers and beaten by the guards. He knew there he would be brought up on false charges. He knew that he faced mocking and spitting. He knew that there awaited him a a crown of thorns upon his brow and a scourge upon his back. He knew he would be paraded through the streets. He knew his disciples would desert him and deny him. He knew he would be stripped naked and nailed to a cross. He knew in Jerusalem he would die. He knew it. In fact, in Luke 18 and verse 31, the Lord Jesus says, We are going to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging, they would kill him. He knew all of this. And still he set his face to Jerusalem. Because he loves you. Because he loves me. There he went to die for us. For he himself would say, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He set his face. Don't you like the the vision that conjures up in your heart? the, The steely gaze of Jesus down into Jerusalem to the cross to die for us. And thus begins... Jesus' travel. And this is the great pivot verse in Luke's Gospel, Luke 9 and verse 51. Just to remind us where we've been, we saw Jesus' Galilean ministry up in the north. He perhaps ministered in Galilee for two years, performing miracle after miracle, accumulating crowds after crowds. It has often been called the Galilean springtime. And yet now he knows it's time to head to Jerusalem, and he begins to travel down to Jerusalem. The next nine chapters of Luke's Gospel are what have been called over the centuries the travel narratives. This is when Jesus is walking down to Jerusalem and the events and the teachings that take place during that time. These passages, by the way, are largely unique to Luke's gospel. And so I'm excited to be able to consider them with you this morning and in the coming months. You'll also notice that while we work our way into the travel narratives, that there's a, a sobriety to Jesus. I think the walls of Jerusalem loom higher each step he takes. And his teaching becomes more urgent. It's almost like we're moving from a Galilean springtime to a Jerusalem winter. There there are not many miracles in these passages and much more teaching, many more parables. And his teaching is hard at times. I imagine there'll be even come times where you'll read a passage and you'll think, that doesn't even sound like Jesus. It's very stern and urgent and radical and challenging. And what you and I must do is resist the temptation to soften what Jesus is teaching us. To make it more palatable and more easy and think, well, he must not have meant this. He he must mean that. We must take the words of Jesus and apply them to our lives and place ourselves under his authority. And Jesus begins to teach in these travel narratives who he, uh, not who he is, but what we must do to follow him. Just kind of put the Luke's gospel together. In the Galilean uh, springtime, 
the early ministry of Jesus, what Jesus was doing, he was proving who he was, right? Remember, they would constantly ask the question, who is this? Who is this that calms the wind and the sea? Who is this that forgives sins? Who, who is this one that I hear so much about? And eventually Jesus would come out and ask that question himself. In chapter 9, he would ask Peter, who do you say that I am? Everyone else says, I'm this or that or this guy over here. What about you? And Peter would say, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And it's immediately based upon that confession that Jesus climbs upon the Mount of the Transfiguration and, and removes that veil and re- reveals His glory. The Father descends from heaven, speaks from the Shekinah cloud of glory. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And it's from that point on that Jesus is no longer interested in determining who He is. That has been determined. He now wants to tell you and them how it is you must follow Him. What is a disciple? What is one who follows after Christ? And he begins that teaching for us today. Four different reactions to Jesus on the road as we learn that the devoted disciple, first of all, loves mercy. There's a call to mercy, as you know, in verse 52. And as he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So Jesus is traveling through. He sends messengers ahead. Now these villages would be small, 200, 400 people. What that means is there's no Holiday Inn in these villages. There's no Magnolias, no wine kitchen, right? Not even an Anthony's there. And Jesus has a large group coming with him. We'll see in next chapter 10 that he sends out 72 of them. There's at least 100, maybe many more people coming with Jesus. This massive entourage moving through these villages. And so he sends some disciples ahead to make arrangements, right? They're not prepared for such a large group showing up. And, hey, Jesus is traveling through. There's a lot of us. Is there a place we can stay? Is there some food we can buy? And so they send them ahead. But you notice how they were received according to verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He was rejected. No, no, we don't want Jesus. I find it interesting, by the way, that Jesus immediately starts his journey to Jerusalem and immediately finds what? Rejection. Perhaps it's a foreshadow of where he's going. You're not welcome here. Of course, we saw in verse 52 that this is a Samaritan village, right? And if you remember back from Sunday school, Samaritans are uh, the the mixed race of the Assyrian conquerors and the Israelites who remained. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans thought that we should worship God not in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. They even built a rival temple there. They accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament. And they said, no, worship is properly understood not in Jerusalem, but in Mount Gerizim. And so Jesus comes through to these people and they reject him. Luke tells us why. You see that in verse 53? Because he set his face towards Jerusalem. Right here comes Jesus, and where's he going? He's not staying here. He's going on. He's going to Jerusalem. He will not even visit our temple at Mount Gerizim. And if he's not going to validate our theology, if he's not going to embrace what we believe, he's not going to say what we believe is an accepted alternative, then, then we don't want him here. They reject him precisely because he's going to Jerusalem. You see, this, I, I think we see this not only here, but throughout history and many people's lives. People will accept Jesus as long as he validates their theology. 
right? We will accept Jesus as long as he likes our ideas and our beliefs. And you think about, you know, almost every major religion has a place for Jesus. Muslims have a place for Jesus. The Buddhists, they like Jesus. Hindus, they're, they're on board with Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they find a place for him. Mormons, they have a place for Jesus. Everyone has a place for Jesus. It's not even religion. Hippies like Jesus. Re- Republicans like Jesus, right? Uh, fundamentalists like Jesus, Marxists like Jesus, racists, they like Jesus, feminists like Jesus, anti-Semites like Jesus, vague spiritual kind of pagans, they like Jesus. Everyone likes Jesus. As long as Jesus validates what we already believe. As long as he doesn't tell me to change. As long as he will join my team. But if he shows up and actually says, no, I'm not a Muslim, actually. I'm not a hippie. I'm not a Republican. not a feminist. Well, then we don't want him anymore. If he shows up and says, listen, I don't follow you. You follow me. I don't join your team. You join my team. Then he's not welcome to us anymore. He's going on to Jerusalem. That's offensive to us. We don't want him around. What about you? Do you try to get Jesus to fit your team? I'm fine with Jesus as long as he believes what I already believe, as long as he allows me to do what I already want to do, as long as he blesses my decisions. Well, he doesn't tell me I'm wrong. But if he does, then I reject him. Don't be like the Samaritans. God came to earth and went to a place that no one else wanted to go, Samaria. And they still rejected him. In fact, it irritated his apostles, especially James and John, as we see in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, James and John have a nickname, don't they? The Sons of Thunder. Perhaps we know why. We'll say, why don't we just call down fire? And we, you know, we're off to Jerusalem. We, listen, we can let the judgment start already, and Jerusalem will quake at our approach, right? And you've got to give them I mean, some credit for their confidence. They don't even say, Jesus, you do it. They say to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire? I almost want Jesus to say, yeah, go ahead and try. Let's see what happens, very confident men, aren't they? Perhaps they're thinking of another story. You remember the story of Elijah told in 2 Kings in chapter 1 when Ahab was trying to capture Elijah sitting up upon a rock. And a group of 50 soldiers showed up and the, the captain said, man of God, come down. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down upon you and consume you. And it did. It killed all 50 of those soldiers. Well, Ahab would not be deterred, and he sent another group of 50 soldiers, the captain of the guard said, up to Elijah, sitting upon his rocks, man of God, come down. He said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you all. And it did. Ahab sent a third group of 50. The captain approached uh, Elijah and fell down on his knees and says, please, won't you come with me? And Elijah agreed. I wonder if this is what they're thinking of. You know, fact, remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared to Jesus? Moses and Elijah. It's very clear to them that Jesus was greater than Elijah. Elijah came to serve Jesus in a subsidiary role. And if, if people who rejected Elijah received fire upon them, certainly if they reject Jesus, then fire should fall upon them. And you almost get this feeling that they think Jesus would approve of them. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire? And they're almost expecting Jesus to say, wow, you guys love me that much. That you're willing to consume an entire village because I can't spend the night here. I love you guys too, right? Let the fire fall. Well, that's not what Jesus responded, is it? 
In fact, Jesus had just rebuked them. Remember verse 49, verse 50? These same guys were trying to stop the exorcist from casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't part of their group. And Jesus rebuked them then, and he will rebuke them here again. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. No, this is not what I want. I don't want judgment. I want mercy. He rebukes them. That's interesting, isn't it? He rebukes James and John, not those who reject him. And it's kind of confusing because one day fire will fall. One day judgment will come. Why not call fire down on these Samaritans? Well, I'd like you to look over into Luke chapter 12. I'm going to show you something interesting in verse 49. Perhaps this will confuse us even more. Luke 12 and verse 49, the Lord Jesus says, I came to do what? To cast fire on the earth and wood that had already were kindled. Right? Why am I here? I'm here to bring fire down on this earth and I want it to already be falling down upon the earth. Well, if that's why you came, then why not let fire fall upon the Samaritans? Well, read the next verse. Read verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Right? If you, you see what he's saying? It's like, I, there's, I, I want to bring fire and I wish it already started. I have a baptism to be baptized with. By the way, he's already been baptized, so he's not referring to a baptism of water. He's referring to something else. I have a baptism to be baptized with. I wish I'm in distress until it's done. This is what we call Semitic parallelism, right? These are synonymous terms. The fire is synonymous to the baptism. What is the baptism? Well, it's bearing the wrath of God. Is he will be immersed in the holy fury of God himself. He will take God's wrath upon himself to pay for my sin and to pay for all the sin of those who would bow their knee to him as king. You see, the fire that he wants to bring down upon this earth is not upon the Samaritans. It's upon himself. He will bear the fire. The fire will fall. But it will fall on him. The reason these Samaritans don't get fire is the same reason you and I have not received the fire from heaven because the fire of God fell upon Jesus. And the more you understand that He took the fire for you, the more you understand that He bore the judgment of God for you, the more you will grow increasingly gracious to those who oppose you. Listen, Christian. When you are amazed that Jesus took the fire of God's wrath for you, you will be far less eager to call for fire upon others. Let me put it this way. The gospel rightly understood will make you merciful. Even merciful to those who reject you. Now we should be zealous for truth. We should be zealous for righteousness as Jesus was. But we need to be more than zealous. We need to be merciful and loving. And the more we understand Jesus' death for us, the more gentle we will become, the more tolerant we will become, the more gracious we will become. James and John, they don't get the gospel yet, right? Let's destroy our enemies. Let's, let's let the fire fall upon them. They don't realize that they are God's enemies. They, they, don't, they don't think for a moment that the fire falling on the sinful Samaritans might actually seek out the sin in their own lives. And it might actually hit them too. See, Christ came to offer mercy first. This is why He came. He came first to save, not to judge. But let's, let's not confuse ourselves. He will judge. 
fire one day will fall upon this earth. You don't have to look far. Just look in Luke 10 and verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom for them for that town. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Judgment's coming. It's going to fall upon the Samaritans of this world. It's going to fall upon the Americans of this world who refuse to receive the mercy in which Christ offers us. The mercy in which He offers us right now. I wonder, my friend, are you ready to face God? He will judge this world because He is holy and good. Are you ready for that? You say, Pastor, you're a fundamentalist. I I don't even believe in judgment. That's fine. You don't have to believe in judgment. But believe this. Jesus believes in it. You may not. But it is abundantly clear. Christ does. And have you ever considered just for a moment that you may be wrong and Jesus may be right? And one day you will stand before a holy God and give accounting of your life. And your only hope is that you by faith have reached out and laid hold of the mercy of Jesus Christ, which he has offered you through his death upon the cross. Judgment's coming. For the rest of us, let's not help God in judgment. Let's let Him handle it. You and I be gracious and merciful and love our enemies, even when we're rejected. Right? Let's, let's not be like James and John. Let's be like Jesus. In fact, you know, uh, they left this town, but Jesus later gathered James and John and the rest of his apostles and said, hey, by the way, guys, you're going to be my witnesses. You know, Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and where? And in Samaria, right? You're going to take the gospel there. Acts 8, verse 25, John preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans, right? You can see him showing up in this town. Hey, guys, remember me? I was wrong. I want to give you mercy, not judgment now, because I understand the gospel. God calls us to mercy. Well, the Samaritans refused. Others wanted to follow him. Notice, secondly, there is a call to sacrifice. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I like this response. I think it's good. I think many thousands have heard the Lord preach and never thought of offering him this. Wherever you go, I'll follow you. But interestingly, Jesus does not say to him, well, come on, the more the merrier. It will be fun. Let's do this. Instead, he says, really? Are you sure? Verse 58, notice Christ's response. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It seems to me that Jesus thinks that when this man offers, I'll follow you wherever you want to go, wherever in his mind includes nice places and only nice places and easy life. And Jesus says, do you realize what you're offering? Right? He says, I want to join you, Jesus. Jesus says, you need to think this through because I'm essentially homeless. In fact, I was born and there was not a place for me in the inn. I went home to Nazareth and they tried to throw me off a cliff. Right? I, I tried to go through Samaria. I just want to spend the night and they wouldn't even let me stay in their town. Even animals have homes. Animals have it better than I do. Are you sure you want to follow me? It seems to me that if Jesus was a pastor in America, his church would not grow very fast. Right? Are you sure? You realize the cost. 
You need to look past the crowds and the palm branches and the praise. And before you sign up, let's be clear. I am a homeless man who owns nothing but the clothes upon my back. And if you follow me, your life may look just like that. I appreciate that Jesus tells him this up front. There's no fine print to read later. He says, I offer you not an easy life, but a rich life. I offer you fullness, joy, and trouble, and sacrifice. There will be trouble in following Jesus, Christian. There will be suffering and sadness. There will be broken relationships and cerebral meningitis. Following Christ brings trouble. And I tell you, Christians above all should never be surprised that there is suffering. Christianity is more than sitting at Jesus' feet. It's more than listening to Him. It is a reorientation of our life. It is a, a sacrifice to Christ. All of us will be called to sacrifice. Our sacrifices may be different. You know, Jesus says, I'm homeless. You ready to be homeless? I don't know if following Christ is going to make you homeless. Maybe. Probably not, though. I will tell you that uh, about four years ago, I was preaching the gospel to villages on a jungle island of Tana with nine translators and men who were carrying Bibles. And we had preached at six villages. And I just finished preaching at the last village. And the sun was setting. And the, 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 the man who was translating for me asked the chief of this village, can we stay here tonight? And the chief said, only if I perform a pagan sacrifice to the spirits. So I can't do that. She told you about Christ. And she said, if you do not pour out this libation to the pagans, spirits, you cannot stay in our village. And the man who was, his name is Chenry, a great godly man, he came to me. He was my translator. He said, Pastor, if you won't do this, we cannot stay here. But you need to understand, Pastor, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Tonight we will be like Jesus. We will have no place to sleep but the jungle out there. That passage has been placed in my heart forevermore. It may make you homeless, maybe just for a night, sleeping in the jungles of Tana. I don't know, but I'll tell you, it will involve sacrifice in your life. It will hit your standard of living. Listen, if you are a Christian, you should not be living at the standard of living that non-Christians should live at. You should lower your standard of living so that you can give to people who want to plant churches like our brother Jacob. You should. You should sacrifice for Christ. He calls us that. He calls us to the discomfort of loving difficult people and the discomfort of ministering in the church. You should not think, I'll minister there if I like it, if it's fulfilling. No, you should minister in the hard places because Christ has walked the hard places and you should follow after him you will face the discomfort of being out of step in this culture being uh, mocked in this culture this is the way to follow christ christianity is not simply a free pass to heaven while we keep living out our natural desires it is a fundamental change in our life a willingness to sacrifice for christ where are you sacrificing do you know it and you say, well, Pastor, I, by God's grace, I'm sacrificing here and I'm sacrificing there. Where are you sacrificing? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Are you willing to follow me now? That's Christ's call to you and to me. He calls us to sacrifice. Well, two more come after Jesus. They also want to follow Jesus, but they have something to do first. And Jesus, for them, calls them to a commitment. A call to commitment. 
Those who follow Jesus are called to mercy, called to sacrifice, called to commit their life to Jesus. Note verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. Note this time Jesus invites him. This man is willing, but there's something he must do first. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father, which seems like a reasonable request, at least on the face of it. Jesus' response, therefore, seems absolutely unreasonable. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Man says, I want to bury my father. Jesus says, no. He says, but he's my father. How how can I not do this? Jesus says, it's time to go. Let's go. Now, I'll tell you, we, we have a little work. Uh, exegetically to do here to try to figure out what this means because you know there are 10 commandments that god gave us one of them you know, number five my favorite right is honor your father and mother right jesus likes the 10 commandments jesus in fact rebuked the pharisees for neglecting that commandment in particular why do you break the commandment of god for the sake of your tradition for god said honor your father and mother that's the words of christ And so this man says, I just want to bury my dad. And I can think of no more, perhaps more important thing in my life not to miss than the funeral of my father or my mother. And Jesus says, no. So what's going on here? Well, I would suggest to you, as most commentators do, that his dad is not yet dead. In this culture, if someone dies, they are buried on that day or at most the next. This man, therefore, would not be on the streets talking to a rabbi passing through. He would be at home with the immediate family preparing the body for burial. He would be ceremonially unclean. He would not reveal himself outside of his home for seven days except for the funeral. Most have concluded that his dad is not yet dead, but is getting old. He will die soon. And this man comes to him and says, listen, I'm caring for my father, but once he has died, I'm going to follow you. You can see him come to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. He says, I will. I, I plan to. You remember my face because one day I'm going to follow you. I just ha- I have to take care of this first, right? Not today. I, listen, I'm going to be a great Christian. I'm going to be a great disciple, but not today. I wonder how many have made that same promise. I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me first get out of college. Let me first get married. Let me first have some kids. Let me first have some fun. Jesus says, No. Follow me now. How many years are you going to waste? How many months are you just going to spend away when you can be following me now, today? That's what Christ calls us to. A commitment to Him. See, if the first man didn't understand the hardness of the kingdom of God, this man doesn't understand the greatness of the kingdom of God. What more could you want than to follow me? In fact, he says, let the dead bury the dead. That's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because the physically dead can't bury the physically dead, right? If you're physically dead, you can't dig a grave. You can't bury someone. So he must mean the spiritually dead. So let the spiritually dead bury the dead, right? Those who are dead to the truth, those who are unresponsive to God. He's in a sense asking this man, are you dead or are you alive? If you choose your father over me, then you're dead. You're physically dead. Go back home and bury your father. But if you are spiritually alive, then come follow me and preach my kingdom. You see, Christ demands this total commitment on him. Christ to you today demands total commitment, 100%. Now, total commitment is not total obedience, right? None of us are totally obedient. But he demands complete surrender. 
being a Christian is completely surrendering your life to Jesus. It's a fundamental change in what you live for. It's a fundamental change in, in how you understand yourself. It's like moving from one realm to another. It's moving from one kingdom to another. I think our brother Mark even thank God for doing that in our lives today, that he has transferred us from one kingdom to another. Let's say you wanted to go to Canada. And you got in your car and you, you drove through Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania and New York and you, and you spent all that expense and all that time getting to Canada, but you hadn't crossed the border yet. Listen, you're still 100% outside Canada. You're still 100% still in the kingdom of America. All this improvement, all this movement has not got you there yet. You know what gets you there? One step. Just, just one step. That was what will take you from one kingdom to another. How many people have been attending church their whole life and living and trying to live a good life and a moral life and they even believe all the truth and they are still 100% outside the kingdom of God because they have not surrendered their life to Christ. They have not taken that step. I believe, but I more than believe. I bow, I surrender, I've committed my life to you. This man is called to commit his life to Christ. Are you committed to Jesus? Do people know it? Do people know that Christ is your priority? Do they know it by how you speak and what you laugh at and what you talk and, and, and how you live? Is there something you could do this week, friends, and at work perhaps, some, something practical, one practical way to show that your commitment is totally to Christ? He demands this. Well, there's one more individual which Christ demands to commit him to commit himself, very similar to the last man we consider, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Right? There's that word again, first. Let me first, right? Perhaps he heard the other exchange. Perhaps he listened to Jesus and say, listen, I, I don't want to wait till my dad dies. I'm ready to go. I just want to go home and, and say goodbye and let him know I'm leaving, which again seems very reasonable, doesn't it? Right? Common courtesy. I'm going to follow Jesus. You guys pray for me. I'm out of here. Right? And, and maybe he's thinking of another story of Elijah. There's a story when Elijah came upon this farmer named Elisha. And Elisha's out plowing his field. And Elijah comes and takes off his cloak and puts it on Elisha. It's a call to follow him, a call for commitment. And Elisha said, okay, I want to follow you, but can I go home first and say goodbye to mom and dad? And Elijah said, yeah, of course you can. And so he goes home and he says, I'm, I'm going, I'm following the prophet of God. I'm committed to him. I'm going to become his disciple. I want you, I'm, I'm saying goodbye. And, and off he goes. And maybe this man is thinking about that. And maybe Jesus is thinking about that too. Because you notice Jesus' response. He begins to talk about plowing. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right? I think Christ must be thinking about this because of this reference of plowing here. In fact, if you read the story of Elijah and Elisha, you know what? Elisha did more than say goodbye. He took, took his plow and he, he cut it into pieces. Now, if you want to be a farmer, what do you need? You need a plow. And you need oxen to pull it. You know what he did with his oxen? He cut his plow into pieces, lit it on fire, killed his oxen, put it on top of the fire, and fed it to his family. Right? In other words, no turning back. I'm in. 100%. I'm going to follow. And this is what Christ is calling for. No plan B. No looking back. No reserve. No retreat. No regrets. 
You have to look forward, he says, if you want to plow a straight line, right? If you keep looking back to where you've come from, what you've given up, you will never plow straight. Look what he says in verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, is useful for the kingdom of God. He's saying, you must follow me completely. Otherwise, you'll be useless for me. You cannot make me look good. You cannot glorify me if you're constantly second-guessing your decision to follow me. I demand everything. So let's, let's be clear here. Christ demands everything. Everything. Total commitment in your life. In fact, Christ is, if you use this metaphor, he has, he has appointed you to plow a line, hasn't he? He has appointed you to, to reap a harvest. Where, where are you looking? You might look at your life and say, my life is all over the place. I have this crooked line all over the place. I'll tell you, the time is now to change. The time is to set your face towards Christ. Stop looking back. Stop being distracted. Look to Jesus, whatever it might cost you. For some of you, it is, it is time to say, I'm done messing around. I am in with Jesus. I am giving my life to Him. I, I am praying that He would save me from my sin and I'm surrendering to Him. He would offer you that mercy and grace today if you would commit your life to Him. He demands that. This is what a disciple does. A disciple follows Jesus, 100%. No matter where he takes you, no matter what he asks you to do, no matter how scary or hard or difficult. I've been reading my, my children uh, a little story written a couple hundred years ago by James McDonald, The Princess and the Goblin. In fact, we were reading it last night. It's an interesting story. A little girl named Irene, she's a princess, lives in her daddy's castle, and she discovers upstairs in her castle lives her fairy grandmother in a secret room. And she loves her fairy grandmother. She's beautiful and ancient and protective. And she gives Irene a, a ring. And attached to the ring is this very thin thread. And her fairy grandmother says, you ever get in trouble, just follow the thread. I'll hold the other end and you'll follow it in your way back to me. Well, she puts the ring under her pillow. And one night she goes to bed and she awakes to hear the sounds of goblins in her room and about. And she gets terrified. And she immediately begins to follow this thread and she expects it to lead her upstairs to her fairy grandmother's room, but it doesn't. It leads her outside to where the goblins lurk when the sun goes down. And yet she continues to follow the thread and to her dismay, it actually leads her to a cave, a goblin cave. She follows the thread and it leads her deeper and deeper into the cave and eventually it leads her to a stone wall. She begins to pull down the rocks and there she finds her good friend Curdy has been trapped by the goblins. And Curdy says, how did you find me? She said, I followed the thread. He says, what, what are you talking about? He says, let's get out of here. She says, okay. Well, Curdy starts to head up the hill to get out of the cave. And Irene says, no, we have to follow the thread. And you know where the thread leads her? Deeper and deeper into the goblin cave. He says, you can't go that way. It's foolish. She says, I would never have found you if I stopped following the thread, even when it looked foolish. I must follow my thread wherever it goes, whatever I do. James McDonald, a believer in Christ, is teaching us that we need to follow Christ wherever he leads us. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it takes you to scary places, calls you to sacrifice, you must follow his thread in your life. The world will say that's foolish. Do what's best for you. Look out for number one. You decide what's right for you and what's wrong for you, right? Don't let other people impose their thread upon you. 
right? And they'll all do what's right. They'll head upstairs to their fairy godmother's room where that's probably where the goblins are to eat them, right? That's the story of the human race running away from Christ into danger. You have to trust Him. You have to give up your right of self-determination. You have to follow Him. That's what He calls them. He makes you wonder, well, what did they do? Did they become homeless? Did they... Did they let the dead bury the dead and go preach the gospel? Did they go home and say goodbye? You know, so we don't know. We're not told what happens, right? I think perhaps because the issue is not about them. It's about us. It's our journey. God gave this for us. And I wonder, where are you saying no to him? Where can you follow him? Jesus, of course, did what exactly he calls us to do. He put his hand on the plow and walked to Jerusalem. He kept going and going and going all the way to the cross, never looking back, never saying, oh, I remember the easy days in Galilee. I remember when I was popular. I remember when everybody loved me. I remember when I wasn't hated and criticized. I remember the good old days. No, he didn't do that at all. Forward and forward, he plowed that line all the way to Calvary's cross. You know why? You know why. So that he might redeem you. So that you might follow him. He has died to give you the distinct privilege to be committed to Him. We want to celebrate that death. We want to celebrate the work of Christ today that has made us His disciples. We don't become His disciples by following Him. He makes us His disciples and we respond by following Him. We have this meal before us this morning to remind us of the work of Christ, His death for us, His broken body, and His spilt blood. And I invite all the Christians here that would participate in this meal that we can remember the work of Christ together, that we might be filled with hope of His grace and mercy for the blood that covers our sins. If you're not a believer in Christ, we would invite you to not participate in this meal, if I could put it that way. This is uh, not because we want to be rude to you, but because this is how the Bible instructs us. So as the plates come by in a moment, if you would just simply pass them on by and not take of the elements, we would appreciate that. And for the rest of us Christians, as the Word of God instructs, I want to give you but a brief moment to speak to the Lord and to prepare your heart for this meal. Let us pray together.